following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Five hundred five years ago, that's a really long time, tomorrow, on October 31st, 1517, German reformer Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses on the front door of Wittenberg's castle church. And why did he do it? What was he announcing? What was he calling for? This really wasn't a big dramatic thing. I mean, people put stuff up on the church door all the time. It's kind of the community bulletin board. But he had a very important reason for doing what he was doing. He was calling for certain reforms in the church of his day to make it more biblical and thus more God-glorifying. In Luther's lifetime, the word of God had emerged from relative obscurity thanks to the working out of God's providence in um, the printing press, but also in the pulpit. Preaching was making something of a comeback, and the reformation of the church was indeed at hand, but not without great opposition. You see, the Roman Catholic Church violently resisted the movement, and there was a great struggle for the hearts and minds, not only of the people of Europe, but specifically of the landed nobility, the military leaders of Europe, the men who commanded armies and troops and platoons. And around 27 years after Luther published his 95 Theses, in 1544, Martin Bucer of Strasbourg, Germany, asked his friend, Genevan reformer John Calvin, to write up a defense of the Reformation and its aims. Bucer arranged to have Calvin's treatise, um, Defense of the Reformation, read at a meeting of the Holy Roman Emperor and a strategic group of noblemen, as those men meant to discuss both the Reformation in Europe, but also the very serious threat of military invasion by the Ottoman Turks on the eastern front of Europe. If any of you boys know the story of the winged hussars, or any songs based on that story, I mean, that's, that's where this comes from, is the invasion of the Ottoman Turks in the east. And so the men, the military leaders, were meeting to discuss that, and part of their meeting was this treatise that Calvin drafted, that he produced for the occasion, called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. Or we could call it, Why We Need a Reformation of the Church Today. In fact, even with the Turks attacking Eastern Europe, the reformers argued through Calvin and in his words that the most pressing and the most important need of the moment was not for more spears or cannons or horses or chariots, no, but for a reformation. Not to strengthen military might per se, not to even unite Europe against a common foe in, in the Turks, but to purify the worship and doctrine of the church. In that order, too, worship and doctrine to the glory of God. See, according to the Reformers, biblical worship and doctrine are the twin pillars of, uh, upon which the church is built, upon which, quote, Christianity chiefly stands among us and retains its truth, end quote. And Calvin warned, quote, when these things, namely worship 
and doctrine are taken away, even if we boast the name of Christ, even if we call ourselves Christians, our profession is empty and useless. He's saying we would be a bunch of hypocrites, be a bunch of liars. To the reformers, worship and doctrine were of chief importance, with worship occupying the first place. That's how important this was. And such, uh, what, what was the reformers' understanding of worship as such? They understood true and spiritual worship to be service to God according to his word. And such service begins with, as Calvin put it, and this is where our text, we're making contact here, quote, the true hallowing of his name which he requires of us above all. That's where worship begins. That's where the most important thing in our lives begins with what we're talking about this morning, the true hallowing of God's name. So as we consider the first and foremost petition of Jesus Christ's model prayer for the disciples, hallowed be your name, here in the second half of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we're taking up a subject with the, uh, which the reformers following Christ Jesus, rightly believed to be the most important concern for all human life and endeavor, the true worship of God in the true knowledge of God. If you look in the back of your bulletins, you'll see there's a paragraph there called Worship at Antioch, and it begins, the worship of the one true and living God is mankind's highest duty and greatest delight. Indeed, that's our confession here at this church, as such is the case, that we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so, if we go even to another part of our creed, of our confessional documents, question 190 in the Westminster Larger Catechism asks about the first petition here, what are we praying for? What do we pray for in the first petition? And the answer is very instructive. In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright, we pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and highly to esteem him, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by, and to glorify him in thought, word, and deed, that he would prevent and remove, both from among us and the world around us, atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, and by his overruling providence, direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. There's a lot in there. We'll unpack some of it, but not line by line. This answer in the larger catechism and the simpler version in the shorter catechism are very helpful for grasping the scope of what it is we're talking about when we plead with God, hallowed be your name. And what I hope to show you this morning from our text, from Matthew 6, 9, at least the second half of it, is something about this number one concern of our lives and especially of our prayers, especially of our prayers. What I seek to show you this morning is that the church's most important prayer request, and we have many of them, but the church's most important prayer request is that God would fully guarantee his own glory in his creation. The church's most important prayer request is that God would fully guarantee his own glory in his creation. And we'll look at this under two headings. First, 
God's glory, and then secondly, God's guarantee. So first, God's glory. Secondly, God's guarantee. Thankfully, he gives us both. So first, God's glory. What is it? What, what are we talking about when we read, hallowed be your name? The word translated here, hallowed be, in our text is, is a passive construction, a passive form of the verb to sanctify, to honor, or to glorify. It would be as if we said, um, our Father who art in heaven, may your name be sanctified. Or may your name be honored. May your name be glorified. Where? In all the earth. In all creation. And the name of God in our text, what, what is it referring to there? It refers not only to his reputation. That is what we say about God. Yeah, he's a nice God. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. Though that's certainly included. But it refers to everything by which he makes himself known to us. All his various names and titles given to us in his word, Jehovah Jireh, uh, Jehovah the righteous, the God who hears prayers, Jesus our Redeemer, all of these names that were given of God, Elohim, El Elyon, all of these different names are, are summarized in this, your name. But also all his attributes, that he's good, perfect, just, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and righteous. His ordinances, all his holy law, and all his commandments to us, summarized in those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then his word, namely that record of his divine intervention into our desperate situation. That record which he's given to us, in which he tells us that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he is indeed intent, bent upon saving a people for himself and the record of how he did it, his specific works, his deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt, his sending of Christ into the world who is himself very God of very God, taking upon himself a human nature to then live and die on our behalf. All of that is summarized here when we speak of his name. And so when we say God's name, hallowed be your name, we're asking for God to sanctify himself in our midst, to show himself to be glorious and holy. What would be the opposite of such a thing? What would be the opposite of sanctification? We have neglect, but really to the point, profaneness. The opposite of sanctification is profanation. That is to profane or insult, dishonor, to blaspheme God. Consider this illustration. How many of you are very concerned about your good reputation, either at work or in your neighborhood or in the community or in a broader professional network or even here in the church? And what if you found out that somebody, somewhere, somehow, was dragging your name through the mud and saying dishonorable things about you? Wouldn't you immediately be anxious about that? I'm not saying God gets anxious. I'm applying this to you. That's how valuable our names are. And once a good name is lost, it's very difficult to recover. I know a man, he was telling me one time that he heard of, of some fella who was insulting his father's good name. And the way he put it, uh, very much in fashion uh, from where I'm from, he said, man, I just wanted to go show that guy a thing or two about what he was saying about my dad. Indeed, we wish to defend the good names of those we love. And we wish to defend their reputations. We wish to defend our own good names. In fact, one application of the ninth commandment 
uh, thou shalt not bear false witness, is to defend your good name and the good name of your neighbor. And so this first petition then, while we might connect it to what the address was, our Father who art in heaven, it actually provides something of a balance to the familiarity of a father. That we're not coming to God and saying, oh, Daddy, we just love you so much. But we're approaching someone whose name is to be sanctified and holy and set apart and to be revered. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I appreciate that the new American standard here has retained that somewhat... uh, archaic or antique phrase, hallowed be, rather than trying to update it. There's something weighty about the language that's very appropriate. And when is God's name glorified? Well, his name is hallowed or sanctified when he is called upon and worshipped by name. When we make our approach to the Father through the name of Christ, we are sanctifying the name of Christ. Thus, our chief prayer request corresponds to man's chief end or purpose to glorify and to enjoy God forever. It's connected directly to worship. This is the purpose of creation. It's the purpose of redemption, of judgment. It's God's purpose in giving us his word and speaking to us. It's God's purpose in whatever comes to pass is to bring glory to himself. God the Father purposes to glorify God the Son, who in turn purposes to glorify God the Father. And the Spirit is involved in doing both. And so God is glorifying himself, not selfishly, for he is triune and utterly unlike us. But this is his purpose in all that comes to pass. It's all to the glory of God, especially, especially in the knowledgeable and affectionate worship of his creatures, in the intelligent communion and loving relationship that we have with God through Christ Jesus. This more than anywhere else where God's name is sanctified. And how? When God's name is sanctified or hallowed by his creatures in worship, his glory is not increasing in amount. It's not that we're adding to God's glory. That's actually a very pagan notion that there was some idea that in, in, in polytheism where you have all these little gods fighting worshipers that they gain strength depending upon how many worshipers they have. That's not our concept of God. God's strength neither increases nor decreases based on how much worship we give him. Rather, what we're doing is we're pleading with God to reveal his glory to us in ever fuller measure and splendor on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God's glory would be seen and acknowledged to be what it is in truth, that we would apprehend it, that that it would be revealed to us and uncovered for us. It's something like when astronomers are are searching deep space and they turn their telescopes to a particular area of the sky and they focus in on one star. Are they doing anything to change the star itself, its substance, its chemical makeup, its gases? No, it's not doing anything to the attributes of the stars. Rather, astronomers reveal the stars in their glory and their splendor, their created splendor, if you will, when they aim their telescopes at them and magnify them. And thus when we say, come, let us magnify the Lord together, we're not changing God. We're focusing on Him. We're we're zeroing in on, on who He is and just how beautiful and glorious He is in our worship. 
And that's what we're doing here. That's what we're calling for. The magnifying of God's glory. And this begins in our own hearts, doesn't it? Before we could ask for him to do this in the world around us, we need to ask him, Lord, hallowed be your name in our hearts, in our fellowship, in our community, in our church. We wish for God to be honored, for him to be revered, to use another biblical word, for him to be feared in our hearts, not in a slavish, cowardly way, but with awe and wonder at who God is and why. Well, we might give this reason. God has every right to be hallowed, doesn't he? He's God. He created us. He ordained whatever comes to pass. He's worthy of all praise for all of our blessings, but also for all those trials which scour away sin in our lives and sanctify us. As it says in Leviticus 22, he is our sanctifier. And so we ought to sanctify his name. But it's also tied to our ultimate good here. When Christ uh, instructs his disciples to pray to God, hallowed be your name, he's telling them that they should pray and make it a chief goal of theirs to fear the Lord, that God would give them a spirit of adoption which rightly sees him as worthy of all praise. And this fear of the Lord gives birth then to what in biblical literature? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom, knowledge, namely of your good. And so when we're praying for God to be hallowed, that's a great starting place for what's going to come later when we pray for him to forgive our debts, to provide our daily bread, and also to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us. When we start praying our own interests, behind all of that is this chief interest of God to be hallowed and sanctified both in our hearts and in the world around us. For such is the source of wisdom. I mentioned earlier, the Sermon on the Mount is indeed a wisdom discourse. Christ is teaching his disciples how to be wise in the world. And so it makes sense in this model prayer that it would begin with the very foundation, the grounds of all biblical wisdom, namely the fear of God, the reverence of his name. But who among us, seriously, boys and girls, who can do this? Don't you have trouble focusing on God when you're praying, when you try to pray? Don't you, some, your mind wanders, you get distracted by something. You'd rather do almost anything else. So who among us can hallow his name in prayer or in worship? It's utterly impossible for us. Consider all the things that we give our hearts and minds to, good things and bad things. You have our ambitions, our needs, our wants, our children and posterity. We got plenty of those around. We have our work, our property, our homes, our honor, our, our husbands and wives, our reputations, our names. Our names? Doesn't that frequently get in the way of what it is to honor God himself? You see, the great problem for each of us that we face when, upon coming into the world, even before we're conscious of what's going on, is this problem of sinful self-centeredness and self-concern. We desire above all things by our nature to have ourselves glorified among men. And that pulls us away from what should be our, our proper focus, and that is the glory of God among men. And as we've seen in weeks past, this sinful preoccupation with self, it infects even our prayer life. We drag it to the very throne of God. 
And that's why Jesus warns his disciples just a bit before this prayer not to be like the hypocrites. Not to pray for the attention and acclaim of men. Not to give alms for the attention and acclaim of men. Not to fast in order to be noticed by others, but rather to do these things for the Lord, with Him at the center of all of our motives. On our own power, we can't even pray this prayer, at least not sincerely, much less worship God as He deserves. But thanks be to God, the securing of His honor and glory in the world, it's not on us. We can't deliver that. We're unable to, which is why we pray to him, hallowed be your name, because he can guarantee it. And so we've considered God's glory. Now we can consider God's guarantee. What does God guarantee? He guarantees to secure his glory in the earth, and he guarantees that he shall be worshipped by a people called by his own name, that his name would be known. This was the purpose of creation in the first place. It's why we read that at the creation, the angels sang for joy at the revelation of God's power in creating all things out of nothing. It was for God's glory. It's his purpose in redemption. Again, why the Israelites were led on an exodus through the desert and why all those miracles of parting the Red Sea, of delivering water out of a stone, of making bitter water potable and good for drink, of, of bringing meat to them, of causing manna to fall down from heaven, of then parting the Jordan River and giving them the land. Why all of this? Why? That God might have a people to worship his name. Remember, what, what does Moses say to Pharaoh? Let us go out to worship our God that he might be worshipped. That's the purpose of redemption. Not only the model of it in the Exodus, but then also what all the prophets say of redemption. Ezekiel again and again speaks of the coming deliverance of the people, of the Jewish people out of exile. Why? That the nations would know that God is God. That they would know that Yahweh, that name, is the name of God. Indeed, this is why Christ came. In Matthew 1.21, it's been almost a year since we looked at that passage. But in Matthew 1.21, what does the angel say? He says, you shall name him Jesus. That is, God saves. For he shall save his people from their sins. And we rightly praise this Jesus with whom we have to do. He has delivered Israel from all her iniquities. He has brought us out of defilement and into right standing with God. How has God done this? He's intervened in creation. You know, we, we Christians, we're supernaturalists. I was asked by a reporter on, uh, on Friday about different things going on in, in the church, uh, not Antioch, but the broader church. And, and he asked me, he said, off the record, Pastor, I want to know, do you think there's any demonic activity behind these troubles that are assaulting the church today? And he's a Christian reporter, and he believes that there is. And I said, well, of course I do. I'm a supernaturalist. I believe that there are supernatural powers at work, and these affect the visible world that we see. I can't see demons and angels. They're invisible to my eye. I certainly can't see God. He's a spirit. He's invisible. But I see the reverberations of this conflict 
between the holy God and those who have rebelled against him. And we see this uh, playing out in creation around us. We are supernaturalists. And this gives us great hope because we believe that we're not just here running around on a planet that was made and then abandoned. We are here operating in full confidence that God is ordering all things directly and indirectly to his own glory and our good. That indeed he intervenes in history to make this the case. You know, when I, every, um, every October, November, I tend to listen to Mendelssohn's Fifth Symphony. It's the Reformation Symphony in the fourth movement. He takes the theme of a mighty fortress is our God, the Ein Festeberg tune, and, and he you know, dresses it up with orchestral arrangement. And I get to thinking about the great recovery of the word of God for the people of God and that great doctrine of justification by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us and how it was, it was uncovered out of obscurity. And I get really emotional because what I see in there is not the great man Martin Luther or the, in, the brilliant John Calvin or Booth or Zwingli or any of those men. What I see behind all of it is God rushing to deliver and sanctify his bride for his own glory. And I'm overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed by it, just thinking of, of what he's done in history, both the grandeur of his deeds, but the great compassion of our God that's displayed through them. And so I ask you, what are you trusting in this day? When you pray, are you praying to men? Are you praying, trusting that it's going to have some kind of psychological effect on you? Or are you praying to a God who intervenes in your affairs, who intervenes in history, who puts an end to your sin and misery, and then grants you life abundant and righteousness. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own abilities, your own imagination to honor God? Or are you trusting in God who in Christ secures honor and glory for himself? Jesus is telling us to trust in the Father in heaven to hallow his own name. If we pray this prayer here for show or expecting to accomplish something on our own without him, then indeed we profane, we dishonor, we take in vain the name of our God. It's only by trusting God and God alone to arrange all things for his name to be hallowed that we ourselves can then even begin to begin to honor and hallow his name. This prayer can be prayed only by those who have been born again, who have been spiritually changed by God. Those who have been, the fancy word is regenerated, but born from above. Those in whose heart the Spirit has worked, this supernatural change, going from being utterly self-centered to then being imperfectly in this life, but eventually perfectly focused on and committed to the glory and name of God, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. And here's the result of that great change that takes place in our hearts. God guarantees to do it. And so you, dear believer, can and must pray this prayer. Jesus tells the disciples when they, when they ask who can be saved, he says, 
which is impossible with men is possible with God. Indeed, it's impossible for us to manufacture faith on our own. It's impossible for us to grant God the honor and the glory that he deserves, but it's possible for the Lord to do this and to do it supernaturally. And he guarantees that he will do it. He makes the promise again and again, I shall be holy. I am the Lord. And again and again, he's reminded us through every, every page of Scripture, it points to Jesus who secures this very thing. So what happens when the Spirit of God unites a man or woman, a boy or girl with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith? Then his chief interest is no longer his own life even or work, his own name or reputation, but is now the work of God, the name of God, the very life of God, the being of our God. The whole chief interest of his life and work, love and, and affection, of his, of his thought and imagination then is bent toward the glory of God alone, the hallowing of his name, not just in private, but also, and especially in public. Remember, this is a public prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, and in every area of life. So as you pray this prayer, you must consider first your own posture and relationship to God. Do you know and acknowledge Him to be the one true and living God? To be your God and Heavenly Father. Do you know Christ the Son as your Redeemer, as your Savior? Have you been washed in His atoning blood? Have you been sanctified by the Holy Spirit? Have you been made holy? Have you been born again to a living hope? Do you have an interest in Christ Jesus? Does His interest occupy your interests and your attention and your concern? Do you see Him in His Word and do you behold a beautiful King or do you regard Him as an irrelevant advisor or even as a harsh taskmaster? How do you Behold God. How do you see him and understand him to be? If you don't see him as beautiful and splendid and majestic, then how can you pray that his name would be hallowed? How can you pray for his name to be hallowed in your heart or anywhere else? This is why we begin our prayers with adoration. Because in that adoration, we're, we're also confessing that he's done something in us to make himself known and to be beautiful to us. And this is why in our prayer meetings we always focus on the advancement of true worship in the world as well, of the influence of our holy God and heavenly Father in every sphere of human activity, in the church, in the marketplace, halls of political power, the academy, in the school, the factory, the athletic field, the hospital, whatever else you can name or think of, wherever people are found, we pray for God to be glorified there. All these settings are platforms for the sanctification or hallowing of God's name. But, but we pray especially, and as a people, as a church, we pray especially for the reformation and beautification of His church. We pray especially for that because that is where God's holiness, that's where His beauty breaks into the world most emphatically where his word is proclaimed and taught, where Christ is named above all. You see, a bride will prepare herself for her wedding day in order to present herself at her best to whom? To her guests? To her mom? <laughs> to, to her bridesmaids? No. To her husband. 
That's why she's doing it. Can you imagine a bride making herself beautiful and then just staring at the mirror the rest of the day and admiring herself? That would be grotesque. Be, be a hideous thing. No. She dresses herself up for her husband to honor him. A good bride attains to the highest possible level of beauty, beauty for a purpose then. And this isn't to impress the guests, but to express love and honor for her husband. And so it is with the church today, my, my dear friends. Whether you're married or not, whether you've been through the wedding day uh, rigmarole or not, I think you can understand the analogy. We're preparing right now for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. We are preparing, and so we beseech God to guarantee the honoring of his name among men because we know that we can't do it ourselves. We need not only his help, we need his guarantee. And so that's what we plead for when we say, hallowed be your name. We're asking him, among other things, to reform his church according to his word, to his glory, to make her beautiful. You know, the Lord's Prayer is uniquely Christ's model prayer intended for the use of his followers when they come together. He gave it to us to pray together. And that's why we pray our Father. That's why we incorporate it into our worship together. But it must never become a ritual recitation. As soon as it becomes mere words on our lips, it loses all power and potency. It becomes corrupted it's then being treated as some kind of superstitious incantation rather than an intelligent and heartfelt prayer to the God who hears prayers. And this is my great, one of my great concerns with expressions of so-called piety in the Roman Catholic Church. They've taken the Lord's Prayer and they've made it the paternoster. And many of them pray it. Do they even know what they're praying? Or when they pray the rosary, certainly when they say a Hail Mary. And, and, and I'm concerned... That even among Protestants, we recite the Lord's Prayer, and boys and girls, you in particular, before the words really make perfect sense, and we do it just because we have to, because we're expected to, maybe because it makes us feel good. No. When we pray, may it be meaningful and intelligent, turning over each petition and each phrase to God with knowledge of what it is we're saying and to whom it is we're saying these things. See, wherever the word is opened, wherever it's read and preached, even wherever it's, it's printed and distributed in the power of the Spirit of God, every element of worship, including and especially prayer, is to be reformed according to God's good design. And as we've seen from the opening petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, the church's important prayer request is that God would fully guarantee His glory in His creation. All creation exists to sing forth the glory of God. And God secures this praise by His Word and Spirit. And the law of God is first and foremost delivered to God's people for the safeguarding of the worship of the church, even as the Reformers understood. And that's why in the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, idolatry is forbidden, worship is regulated by God's Word, cursing, that is, taking God's name in vain, is forbidden and outlawed, and why the Sabbath is to be sanctified and remembered as a holy day of worship. And this is where we have repeatedly failed to worship and obey God. And where we've failed, Christ has come to stand in our place. He has come and worshiped God perfectly. Why? For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. The joy of seeing a people 
a church, God's people, redeemed and reformed and refashioned according to the Word of God to worship the Father through Christ the Son in spirit and in truth. Let's stand together for prayer. O our God in heaven, we bless your holy name. You indeed are worthy of all praise and glory among men. And we ask you, Holy Spirit of God, to make us more and more faithful in our declarations of praise and adoration. Impress upon us the beauty and majesty of God the Father. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us a due honor of Christ the Son and of his name. Lord, we pray that you would remove far from us all profane speech and thought that you would be honored in our private lives and in our corporate and public lives. We pray for our land and our nation that you, O Lord, would secure and guarantee your honor among the nations. Lord, we pray especially for your church. Reform her according to your word. Be gracious unto her for your sake. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.